Today's sermon is on Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. Jesus, it seemed, attracted all the wrong people. They had been flocking to him from the far north and the far south, from the Jewish heartlands of Judea and Jerusalem, and from the margins beyond the Jordan. They'd come seeking healing and exorcism. They were the disenfranchised masses, the poor, the unemployed, the displaced, the sick and the unclean. And in today's passage from Mark's Gospel, we encounter Jesus the exorcist, casting demons out of people and causing a storm as he does so. Now, I don't know what images run through your mind when you hear the language of exorcism and exorcists. Possibly you may think of the cult classic horror film The Exorcist from the early 1970s. Or you may think of a charismatic preacher on the God Channel casting demons out of people left, right and centre to the applause of an appreciative congregation. There's no doubt that in many ways, those of us who consider ourselves to be liberal-minded and sensible Christians often find it much easier to stay away from stories of exorcism. At best, we find them mildly embarrassing. At worst, they are manipulative, abusive and dangerous. So what are we to do with the fact that exorcism was a central aspect of Jesus' ministry? Do we simply regard these stories as pre-psychological myths? Or is there some way in which we can encounter Jesus the exorcist in a meaningful way in our oh-so-rational and post-enlightenment world? I've been greatly helped in my thinking through of these issues for this sermon by the work of Ched Myers, and I do recommend his writing if you find the approach I'm taking this morning helpful. So let's take a look and see what's going on here in the text of Mark's Gospel. Here we see Jesus in a struggle with unclean spirits specifically over who has the power to name him. So his disciples often appear confused about who he is. Uh, The demonic forces he encounters in the story know exactly who he is. And they seem to believe that in some way they can bring him under their control by announcing publicly who Jesus is. So Jesus is seen through Mark's gospel, routinely forbidding the unclean spirits from making him known. And at issue here in Jesus' confrontation with these unclean spirits is a question about who has the power to frame reality. When I was at school, I studied uh, George Orwell's book, 1984, uh, the dystopian novel. And in the book, 1984, I don't know if you've read it, the authority to name or describe reality becomes the power to frame reality, to create the reality that is itself being described. So the central characters, Winston and Julia, are attempting to speak a different reality into being, and they discover to their eventual cost that the Orwellian state cannot permit such alternative realities to be spoken into existence. And the same story is played out around the globe in our world today as states find ways, both brutal and subtle, of silencing dissenting voices, as they maintain their power by speaking their own vision of the world into being. The reality that is remembered is the reality that is spoken by the strongest and the most effective spin seems to carry the day. Well, let's rewind to the first century. In Jesus' own time, the Roman Empire's propaganda machine 
worked hand in hand with its military regime to reinforce and enforce a Roman view of the world. If you were part of the empire, you worshiped the Roman gods, you played it the Roman way. And the Jewish state, which had been brought into Roman domination uh, some years before the time of Jesus, had largely gone along with the Roman worldview, guarding with care just their few hard-won concessions, such as the famous exemption that first century Jews had from worshipping the emperor as a god. So, when we've got Jesus turning up and sort of rocking the boat, challenging the authority of the Roman overlords and the Jewish political powers, like many a potential revolutionary before him, Jesus needed to be named, dominated and silenced. And according to Mark's gospel, Jesus' practice of exorcism was always a practice of unmasking the truth of a given situation. And as such, Jesus' practice of exorcism, the naming of evil and the consequent challenging of the power of evil, I think this remains fundamental to this day to any movement of liberation, whether it's personal or political. This is why fearless and independent journalism matters so much. And of course, it's why any aspiring dictator will always seek to take control of the press. Whoever has the freedom to speak reality into being gets to write that reality into existence. If you have no one naming the evil, you have no power to do anything about the evil. A conspiracy of silence is a forerunner to a conspiracy of capitulation. So if you think about the situation in Nazi Germany in the Second World War, you silence those who are pointing to the horrors that are happening, and then the horrors continue because people claim they don't know about the horrors. This is why naming truth matters, and this is what Jesus is doing consistently, and it's what we see him doing in our story in Mark's Gospel. The person who claims that there are no demons and that no exorcism is necessary is allowing themselves to be blinded and silenced, and Jesus sought to challenge that. So in today's passage, we find the stakes being raised in terms of Jesus' confrontations with power structures that oppress and diminish humanity. Jesus is returning home, and as he walks back to his family home, he finds himself engulfed by crowds who have been following him around. Those of us who live in and around London uh, will remember crowds. They were great, weren't they? <laughs> We know that on occasions though, being caught up in a crowd, particularly one made up of diverse and desperate people can be a terrifying experience. And Jesus' family start to fear for his safety and indeed his sanity. And they try to get Jesus to distance himself from the crowds who are flocking around him. To make matters worse, the scribes who've come from Jerusalem are launching a counter-offensive as they're starting to realize that this upstart preacher from Nazareth is drawing to himself exactly the kind of people that revolutions are made of. The composition of our passage for this morning is what in technical biblical studies language we call a sandwich. Actually, we call it an intercalation, but sandwich will do for now. 
And what this means is that Mark starts a story, which is like the first piece of bread, and then he inserts the filling, which is a different story, and then he tops it off with the second piece of bread by coming back to and finishing the first story. He does this in a number of places in his gospel, and it's always an invitation for us as readers to hold these stories together, to see how they shed light with each other. And in our passage today that Margaret read for us just a few minutes ago, the two slices of bread, the framing story, are a story about Jesus' family trying to get hold of him. And then the filling, the meat in the sandwich, is a story about the Jerusalem scribes trying to get Jesus. So you've got his family trying to get him and you've got the Jerusalem scribes trying to get him. And in these two strands, family and state, we find the two ancient pillars of social authority. You are dominated by the state you live in or the family that you're part of. And here we see them working together to try and domesticate a potential revolutionary. In the ancient Mediterranean world, the kinship or family system rigidly determined a person's personality and identity. It controlled everything from their job prospects to their social status. And we hear a lot of talk these days about social mobility or lack of it in our society. Politicians of every stripe are always quick to claim that their ideology will allow children of humble origins to climb to the top of society with ease. And yet we still have a university system in our country dominated at its upper levels by those whose parents have been rich enough to pay for private education. I had a little look and 65% of Boris Johnson's cabinet were privately educated and half of them attended either Oxford or Cambridge. And despite the best efforts of politicians to claim differently, family background still counts for a lot, especially when that background is reinforced by a national ideology deeply permeated by class ethos. Ed Miliband once memorably said, it's harder to climb the ladder from the bottom when the rungs at the bottom are further apart. So when someone comes along, as Jesus did in the first century, seeking to challenge the status quo, family systems and state structures fall into an easy alliance to act together to preserve normality and restrict mobility. From the parent who tells their child not to get ideas above their station, to the careers advisor who suggests jobs in line with perceived social status. I remember my careers advisor at school telling me I should become a social worker. The barriers to mobility take shape both within and without a person's family structure. And sure enough, here in the gospel, we find Jesus' family seeking to rein him in. He's getting ideas above his station. He's about to become a dangerous political figure in the land. And they claim, of course, it's for his own protection. But of course, it is also for the sake of their reputation. Who wants a troublemaker in the family? However, and... This is an interesting thing here. In verse 32 of our passage, we find Jesus and the crowd in the family home and the family are outside it. As is always the case in Mark's gospel, things like this don't happen by accident. He is showing us that Jesus understood full well that in order to weave an alternative social fabric, 
the most basic conventions and constraints of the family system must be questioned. So when Jesus is told that his family are asking for him, he replies, who are my mother and my brother, before concluding that his true family are whoever does the will of God. His biological family are now outside and those who follow him become the insiders. The power structure of the family home is disrupted. And it's clear that Jesus will not be defined by the expectations and conventions of his birth and family. Meanwhile, the official investigators from Jerusalem start echoing the family's accusations. The family are saying to themselves and anyone who will listen that Jesus has gone out of his mind and the scribes say something more sinister. They say he is possessed. Family and state are trying to close down the troublemaker, Jesus. The scribes then up the ante even further, suggesting that Jesus is in the service of none other than Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And this, of course, is a predictable strategy of threatened political leaders the world over. Neutralize the opposition by identifying them with the mythic archdemon. It's classic Trump. And it's a tactic we see across our world. George Orwell captures it in 1984. If you think to that book, in the world of 1984, the world is divided into three power blocks. At any given time, two of them are at war with the third. It's just the ally and the enemy change place from time to time. But the significant thing is that when they change places, history is rewritten. Today's ally, we are told, has always been our ally. Today's enemy has always been the enemy, even if that isn't historically true. Those who threaten the status quo are always neutralized being, by being aligned with whoever today's enemy is. So whether it's reds under the bed in the 1960s, labeling conscientious objectors as Nazi sympathizers in the Second World War, or assuming that everyone who is non-white is a potential terrorist, we still in our society have these strong systems that both prevent social mobility and shut down anyone who tries to challenge the status quo. And yet Jesus was this arch challenger of the status quo. And we who are the followers of Jesus are surely called to do the same. And when we do, we run the risk of being shut down, being silenced being cancelled. And so we get to Jesus' practice of exorcism, which fits into this world of who gets to name reality, who gets to name power, who gets to speak and who doesn't. It's here that Jesus tells his parable of the strong man. Verse 27 from our reading. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. So in this little parable, this little verse, Jesus is making his subversive intentions clear. He's likening his mission to that of a thief. He's making it clear that his ministry of exorcism, of overthrowing the demonic hold that systems of family and state have on people's lives, is him breaking into Satan's house tying Satan up and releasing those who are held captive. And of course, later in the gospel, 
Jesus quite literally breaks into the house of Satan when he enters the temple in Jerusalem and casts out the thieves who have taken residence there. However unsettling this metaphor may seem of the ministry of Jesus as a thief breaking and entering, the tradition of Jesus as a coming as like a thief in the night is one of the most enduring images of Jesus in the early church. And so the answer to Jesus' question of whether Satan can cast out Satan becomes clear. Jesus, the one falsely accused of acting on Satan's behalf, intends to overthrow the strong man of the Jewish scribal establishment. He has come to attack the system that is binding people in oppression, in fulfillment, of course, of the prophet Isaiah, who says in chapter 49, the captives of the strong man will be liberated, the prey of the tyrant will be liberated. So here we have Jesus breaking into the strong man's house and liberating those held there. And I think this is a challenge to us as the followers of Jesus to consider where the strong man's house is in our world. It's not the strong man of the Jewish scribal environment of the first century, but there are powers and principalities at work in our world that oppress and bind people. I'm thinking of racism, I'm thinking of sexism, I'm thinking of homophobia, but at wider levels as well, there are powers of domination in the world, such as the free market, overseen by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, which so often facilitates vast movements of money around the world which disadvantage the poor and advantage the rich. I was greatly heartened yesterday to read the news that there looks like there may be uh, attacks being brought in on uh, the way in which uh, corporations that move internationally are paying tax. The unfairness of tax havens has been a system that in our world has been called out for many years by organisations like Jubilee 2000, who've spent the last 21 years saying we need to do something about these systems of global money movement that disadvantage the poor and advantage the rich. And it is just brilliant that there are paths beginning to open up, that that unfairness is being addressed. But we live in a world where the strong man usually wins, where the rich man usually wins. And I just think that the example of Jesus here is that Christians are called to name that reality and to name it fearlessly. I don't think it's at all inappropriate for a preacher in the pulpit to say the international movement of money in this world is often a great evil, to name evils of sexism, homophobia, racism. The political evils that exist in our world are the things that Jesus came to challenge and that Jesus through Jesus' people still comes to challenge. We are called to identify and name the strong man in our world as the first step of taking steps to challenge and see the world reshaped differently, which becomes, of course, a call for Christian political social action. And so as we come to communion in a few moments and come to rededicate ourselves to our service of the body of Christ, my invitation for each of us is to think, what is it in our lives that we can be doing to name the evils in our world and then act to see them overthrown? How can we break into the house of the strong man and bind him and plunder his house so that the poor and the disadvantaged get the justice that they deserve?
Let us come before God in prayer. Loving God, creator and sustainer of all, we come together this morning once more to bring our concerns and petitions to you. We recognize that we do not live up to your ideals, neither as individuals nor as societies. Forgive our selfishness, greed, and inappropriate desires. Help us truly to see what it is you desire for your world and for us, your creation, as we attempt to live together in the place you have designed for us. We think of the many situations where the strong men have taken control, exerting their power and bringing distortion and violence wherever they are. We think of ruling authorities who oppress those for whom they are responsible, denying their subjects the freedom to live autonomously. Especially we remember now the peoples of Myanmar, of Palestine and of China, all places where people are subjected to extreme violence for no reason other than their ethnicity or for differing political views. We pray too for all those whose skin color, gender or orientation cause them to be discriminated against by both individuals and wider society. We pray for those whose poverty is caused by unjust economic systems formed out of greed and selfishness. For those countries whose internal policies are manipulated by external global powers, such as the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, or massive trading blocks, that claim to have the best interests at heart, but which result in decades of ever-growing poverty and dependence. We think of the ongoing destruction of the natural world, resulting from the continuing demands of consumerism and the desire always for bigger and better and more. We pray for all who suffer at the hands of others. And we pray too for all who challenge these powers that create unjust realities in order to maintain authority and for those places where such structures oppress and diminish humanity. Give us the wisdom to recognize what is happening. Help us to unmask the truth. Give us the courage to name the evil in the land and to speak a different reality into being, recognizing that we may indeed be silenced for so doing. May we truly desire to liberate the captives of our global house. Give us the courage to speak, to confront, and to challenge the powers of evil, that we may join Jesus in binding the strong man and plundering his treasure. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
And so may the blessing of Almighty God, creator, redeemer and sustainer, be with us all today and forevermore. Amen.